Turn to Daniel chapter 9. As we begin, I'll look at the prayer of Daniel. Part 1 tonight, part 2 next week. But the prayer that's contained here, that's Daniel's prayer, is perhaps one of the greatest in all of the Bible. Uh, In the Old Testament, uh, I would say it rates up there as the greatest, and it may be second only really to the Lord's Prayer himself. And this prayer is a model in so many ways for our prayer life, but it begins really a look forward into the time that the prophets had written about. And again, I remind you that Daniel's writing at a time that's well after uh, many of those works that we would call the Old Testament, so already in existence, uh, certainly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. You would have the writings of Jeremiah already, the writings of Isaiah already, the writings of Kings and Chronicles, the history of the children of Israel, uh, the books of Joshua and Judges, likely the book of Ruth and Esther, Much of the history of Israel would have already been codified and written down. Um, Those books would have made it to Jerusalem. They would have been studied. And we're going to see tonight that Daniel was a man of the word. And one of the reasons that we love Daniel is it so so puts into perspective our, our modern attention to the totality of the word of God, to prayer, and to making sure that we're turning to the Lord in all things, that it really gives us kind of a background, if you will, of what our own prayer life ought to be as we're praying for the church, praying for the world, praying for our country. And so tonight, uh, we'll take the first 15 verses here, and so if you join me, uh, we'll pick up in verse 1 in a moment, but let's pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the incredible bravery of Daniel to be a man of prayer when the world said that prayer was useless or that his his God was first in his life, not second or third. We pray that our lives would be impacted by his prayer life even tonight. Lord, would we be able to uh, just take this time tonight and, and make it our own, Lord, make it a a window into our own prayer life, or to be in the moment for us. And we pray that you'd work tonight by your spirit to change our lives. Lord, help us to understand the importance of prayer, or the content of this prayer, the outline of this prayer, all of it, Lord, certainly for our growth, for our understanding, Lord, for knowing how we ought to approach the throne room of heaven. And so, God, would you lift us up into the heavens tonight and teach us from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. And in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah. And I want you to take a very, very precise look at what was just said. I, Daniel, understood by the books, plural, in other words, the word of God, the number of years, a very specific amount of time, specified by, 
by the word of the Lord, God's voice through the written word, through the prophet Jeremiah. And so there is a reference here to the totality of the word itself and very specifically to the prophet Jeremiah and that those words Daniel believed were absolutely spot on perfect and intended to be taken literally. Daniel was a believer in the literal interpretation of scripture because he's talking about precise numbers of years specified by the word of the Lord. And we're going to look at those passages tonight. That he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now why is this important? Because from a human perspective, very often we look at things that go on in our lives and we almost look at it like it's coincidence or it's a compounding effect of circumstance. Or maybe God just kind of takes all the things that happens in the world and he just simply makes good out of them. Which those things are partially true. But from God's sovereign perspective, nothing goes on on this planet that he is not sovereignly in control of. Whether that is sovereign permissibility, in other words, he allows it. Or sovereign accountability, in other words, he's responsible for it. Either God causes something to happen or he allows it to happen. Those are the only two choices that there are in every single thing that happens in the universe. If God is sovereign, he either allows them or he directly causes them. There's nothing else. There are no other categories. And so in this case, if God is writing his word and he writes in his word very specifically what's going to happen to the Jewish people and how long that is going to last. And he says very specifically these 70 years. Then God is telling us he's actually the one behind the captivity that they're in in Babylon that he is the one directly behind the captivity in Babylon. Is God evil? No. Does God use circumstance to get the attention of people? You better believe he does. And when we won't learn the easy way, I don't know about if you guys have learned this or not, when I won't learn the easy way, when I don't listen to the Lord and I will not do what he's asked me to do and I rebel against and we're going to see all these things in the prayer tonight, then God ratchets up the heat. He, he turns up the consequences. He, he allows things to come into my life that aren't necessary at the time that maybe I understood that truth, but they've become necessary because I've been rebellious. Uh, in essence, God says, okay, I'm going to let you take it the easy way if you want, but I'll let you have it the hard way if you have to have it that way. And in this case, that he would accomplish the 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem, that God full well knew in advance that the Jewish people would go into captivity for 70 years. And then I set my face towards the Lord God, and I want you to begin to look at now what Daniel is actually saying. He's about to begin this prayer. The original language here is that the object of Daniel's attention becomes the Lord. 
You see, a lot of times when we're praying, the object of our attention is still whatever is in our mind, whatever circumstances going on around us. That's why it's difficult sometimes to, to pray in public places, why it's difficult, you know, you're driving down the freeway and you want to pray, but it's, it's hard because your attention, it's hard to get it on heaven while you're trying to keep it on the car in front of you. And so Daniel says, I set my face towards the Lord God to make request by prayer. And again, the, the original language gives us a little insight. He's asking God very politely, I, I'm making a request. I, I'm not pressuring you. I'm not cajoling you. I'm not making a deal with you. I, I'm not telling you a, a quid pro quo thing. If you do this, I'll do that. It's not a tit for tat thing. It is, God, my face is toward heaven, and I'm asking you as politely as I can to hear my prayer, my supplications, my, my internal groanings of soul towards heaven with fasting. There is effort put into this prayer. When we fast, we deny ourselves. But when we fast, we're saying, Lord, I want to hear from you, so I'm willing to tune out all the rest of the things of this world. There, there are times that I believe we must fast, those very serious decisions, things that come up in our lives where the, the only real way to hear the voice of the Lord is to turn off everything else and to turn up our spiritual acuity. And that's what fasting does. It turns up your acuity for the things of the Lord. It, it puts away the things of the world. Stuff just begins to fade away. And then he says something interesting. We don't see this much in our world today, and I'm not suggesting that you need to come to church in sackcloth and ashes, but this is a, a place of contrition, of heart. This is, I, I'm going to make myself of absolutely no effect, no report. I, I want to be seen as having nothing sufficient in and of myself. It's like self-deprecation in prayer. I'm going to wear sackcloth, which is what we would call a gunny sack. It's what they would wrap things in. It was the very cheapest of cloth. It was coarse. It was painful. And so when you wore sackcloth, you're running around, you know, it's like I'm wearing a Pendleton right now. Um, I love Pendleton wool. It's nice and soft, but even Pendleton wool against your bare skin is a little bit rough. Now imagine that you're wearing a gunny sack. You're wearing burlap. You're wearing a feed bag as a garment. It's a sack cloth. And then ashes. It's a sign that you've been before the burnt offering of the Lord. There's nothing left. Your prayers have gone up. Your offerings have been made. There is nothing left to expend. So hungered from denying yourself. Deprecated. In the, it, there's nothing. There's no longer any show. You know, can I tell you, sometimes people come to church and they're putting on a show. They've got their happy face. They've got their best clothes. They, they've cleaned it all up. You know, they've painted the face if necessary. In my case, painting on a face would be necessary. We've done all the things to make other people think that everything's well with our soul. This is the opposite this is an admission before God that things are not okay. Lord, Lord, I want to tell you things are not okay right now. 
I desperately need to hear your voice. So I'm going to go hungry until I hear your voice. I'm just going to deny my flesh. And when you begin to deny your flesh, your, your flesh initially tries to kick in and take over. One of the craziest things that happens to me personally when I fast is the, the first and second days are always the hardest. The third day it kind of turns into, well, this isn't as bad as it was the first couple of days, so this is going to be okay. And then you get into this wonderful place where it's just like, Lord, I'm going to keep going until you tell me to stop. On one hand, it gets harder, and the other hand, it gets easier. It's just like the Lord's voice just gets so amplified in that denial of self. As we begin this look at this prayer, it's now been 66 years that have passed since Daniel's gone into captivity, first expelled with the rest of the Jewish people. Um, so at the very most, there's four years left in their captivity, and we're not exactly positive of the timing, but there's very little time left. The golden empire of Babylon, part of the original image, is gone. The silver image of the media Persian empire is about to come to its close. The bronze empire is going to rise up, and eventually it will fade away. Uh, the clay, the iron will do the same. But in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, if you remember this great image and Daniel's dream of the four beasts, the vision of the ram, all these things, the goat, they all point towards ex- this extended period of time where Israel is the focus. And, and so God is speaking to the children of Israel and he's saying there's going to come a point in time when you're going to take your rightful place in the world but it's not right now. There's still some time. And so there's going to be an explanation during this, this time and this prayer uh, of, of what is going to really be the timetable for what's left, what we would call the age of grace. And so this chapter in its totality provides really a, a framework, or you might call it a skeleton upon which the rest of the prophetic plan God has for the children of Israel during what we, re- we view as the times of the Gentiles. What Jesus said in Luke 21 as he speaks the Olivet Discourse, uh, what Paul referred to in Romans chapter 11 as, as the times when the Gentiles would trample underfoot uh, Jerusalem itself, that God has a plan for that time. It, it's not something that is just a series of, of endless uh, events without meaning. God has a plan in all of this. And so as we look at this prayer, I want you to notice first what prompts the prayer of Daniel. What prompts the prayer of Daniel? He refers to Jeremiah the prophet that somehow in in Daniel's repertoire, and it's found there in Jeremiah 25, if you want to keep a finger in Daniel and flip over to Jeremiah 25, you can. We're also going to look a little bit at Jeremiah chapter 29. But there the prophet uh, had sent a letter, and and Jeremiah um, is giving instruction uh, to the exiles who be living in Babylon. Now remember, Daniel 
uh, is a couple of hundred years after Jeremiah and Isaiah, so there's been a fairly significant amount of time between uh, the writings of, of uh, Jeremiah and Daniel, but notice what our passage says. I studied the books. I was a student of the Word of God. I knew what the Lord had said. Church, if only the church in the world today could say the same thing, that I know what the Word of God says. I have studied, I've been a Berean, I've looked at every yot and every tittle. I know what the Word of God says. And so therefore, I know what God wants. Therefore, I know what God's doing. Therefore, I know God's standards. Therefore, I know how to love my wife. Therefore, I know how to handle my home. I I know how to be a citizen in my time, in my country. And so Jeremiah actually predicts what's going to happen. And so the Jews uh, are going to be exiled and and the next thing basically that's on God's calendar uh, as far as Daniel can see, uh, he actually understands what's going to happen. So if you look at that passage uh, in Jeremiah 25, uh, it says there in verses 11 and 13, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland. These nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. So this is what Daniel's referring to. God had already spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet had told the children of Israel that they were going into captivity. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon. Guess what happened? The 70 years are fulfilled. What's happened to the king of Babylon? He's dead. And his nation, and the Babylonians for his guilt. God is completely righteous in how he handles these difficulties. The prophet Jeremiah spoke into Daniel's life by the word of the Lord. The Babylonians were guilty. That's why God would punish them. And he says, declares the Lord, for I will make it desolate forever. I will bring upon that land all the things I have spoken against it, all that are written in the book and prophesied by Jeremiah against all of the nations. So the things that Jeremiah said, Daniel lived long enough to see happen. That that is a perfect example of why I believe we have to look at the word of God through the lens of truth. We don't look at the Word of God as a giant book of suggestions. It's not philosophy. It isn't, you know, our faith, in essence, our, our, our way of faith or our particular brand of faith. The Word of God, the Bible, is truth. It's intended to be taken as, where there is no reason to take it any other way. It's meant to be taken literally. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other meaning. The principal law of interpretation of Scripture. If you look at it, it seems to mean what it says. That's what it says. God means it. He didn't write a complex book so that no one could understand it. He gave us his word so that we could understand, so we could know what's going on in our world. And so since the fall of Jerusalem in 586... 
Uh, Daniel's 70 years would, would come, his own captivity would be over. Uh, and so if you look back on all of this time, God made absolutely specific promises to the children of Israel and they are coming true right before Daniel's eyes. If you were to read both Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, you're going to find seven things that they were told to do while they were in captivity. They're on the screens in front of you, but they are to build houses and settle down. You're going to be there for 70 years. You know, children of Israel, I'm sure, began to plot how they were going to get out of Babylon probably in day one of year one. But through the prophet Jeremiah, he had actually told them, don't bother. Build houses and settle down. He also told them to plant gardens and eat what they produce. Why? Because you're going to be there for 70 years. Settle down. You're not getting out easy. You, you need to be prepared to be there for a whole generation. Marry and have families. In other words, increase in number. I have a plan for you, but that plan is going to be deeply dependent on your obedience and what you do in your present is going to affect your future. Had they not been faithful to that command, they may well have died out in Babylon. But because they were going into captivity, God sent a prophet, someone to speak into their life. And he says, look, you're going to be there for 70 years. Settle down, plant gardens, have kids. Seek peace and prosperity with Babylon. Because if you come against Babylon, Babylon's going to destroy you. Babylon's going to wipe you out. So you better learn to get along with them. And you're saying, wow, you know, I wouldn't have done that. I would have stood up. Daniel stood up the right way. He was what we would call a conscientious objector. He just said, nope, I'm not bowing. I'm going to stand right here. And he was willing to risk, as were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, any evil that would befall him because it was incumbent upon God to deliver him because God promised him that that's what he would do. And so he trusted God. He just said, look, if you say it, God, I'm doing it. And we see that all throughout Daniel's life. He told them not to be deceived by the prophets and the diviners among them. Remember who Daniel fought with. The prophets, the diviners, the Chaldeans themselves, the soothsayers, the people that came out that, you know, well, we can interpret your dream, O king. He said, don't be deceived by them. You wait for me. And then finally, he tells them here in, in uh, these verses, in verse 11 specifically, that they were going to be there serving the king of Babylon for 70 years. And the end of that time was very fast approaching. And because God was good on the front end, God was going to be good on the back end. Because God had told them the truth in the beginning, it was still going to be truth at the end. And so as this time period began, can you imagine as the light bulb went on prophetically in their lives and they're realizing that Jeremiah the prophet had told them exactly how long they were going to be there and they're now out 66 years and they're starting to think, man, tomorrow could be the day. We might be heading home. And that really is the power of the prophetic word in our life, in our day and time right now. Daniel knew that that 70 years would end. Daniel was standing on God's promise. It wasn't going to be 80. It wasn't going to be 42. It was going to be 70. And when God is specific, 
God is specific. And this is going to become very, very evident as we look at this prophetic picture of what's going to happen uh, when we get deeper into chapter 9 here, after we finish the prayer and we look at this prophecy of these 70 weeks. Daniel recognized that Jeremiah wrote these things, and he understood that, that all of these things would be inspired by God, and even though maybe the Hebrew versions of these things were not readily available to everyone, certainly their leaders understood this. They certainly understood what Isaiah had said, because he had been writing in the 7th century, again, well before Daniel's time. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, speaking of Cyrus, whom just came and liberated Babylon, amen? So they were told who was going to come and liberate Babylon before Cyrus was Cyrus. God told them Cyrus would liberate Babylon. Speaking of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say to Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let's let its foundations be laid. So the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Cyrus the Mede, in a time that be in the lifetime of Daniel, tells us of the pagan king that's going to set the Israelites free to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. Furthermore, in chapter 45 of the book of Isaiah, and again, I encourage you, come out on Thursday nights. We're studying Isaiah. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I want to be really careful here. Notice what it does not say. I will raise up a righteous Cyrus. It does not say that. So for those of you that keep, you know, passing around this foolishness uh, that our president or someone else is actually righteous because he's Cyrus, Cyrus was not righteous. Cyrus was used for righteousness. Very different thing. Cyrus was still a pagan king, used of the Lord. We don't know his dispensation before the Lord. But he says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness, and I will make all of his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or a reward, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, you won't be able to be bought. God's going to simply make him do it. And so Cyrus foretold before he ever came. And so Daniel's heart had to be stirred when he first hears the report that this young king Cyrus of Ashan in Persia has come to liberate the city of Babylon. And you imagine when they break into the city, they crash through the Ishtar gates, and everybody's going, well, what's the name of the dude that's conquered? Oh, his name's Cyrus. Daniel's going, well, I knew that. Cyrus actually had already overthrown his own uncle, Astyagus, in a you know, battle, and had made himself ruler of the entire Medo-Persian Empire. And so, there are a couple of things that we can learn here, and they're just hermeneutical lessons, lessons of interpretation. Number one, Daniel believed in the literal fulfillment of prophecy. Daniel believed in the literal fulfillment of prophecy. This was not figurative. It was not symbolic. Daniel believed that there were actually going to be 70 years and there actually was going to be a King Cyrus and King Cyrus was actually going to set them free and King Cyrus would be the one that would send them back to Jerusalem. That is the literal interpretation of the prophecy 
of Isaiah the prophet and Jeremiah the prophet. So Daniel believed in the literal interpretation of future things as prophetically spoken by people generations before himself. A second thing, and this is, this is the part that should kind of excite some of us tonight. The closer we get to the fulfillment of prophetic events, the more we who study the Bible are able to discern what's going on, the signs of the times, the seasons, what's happening in our world. You know, you're going to have some interesting discussions given what's going on in Iran right now, which was former King Cyrus's land. Amen? That's Persia. Anybody know when Iran actually became Iran? It actually wasn't until 1979. Before that, it was Persia. It had been Persia from the time of Cyrus until 1979. And so Persia's in the forefront again. Matter of fact, people from Iran very often speak of themselves as being Persian. They won't say, I'm Iranian. They'll say, I'm Persian. Very proud of their Persian heritage, as well they should be. Tremendous advancements in our world through the Persian people. And so Daniel, because he's now very close... He's within a couple of years now of the completion of a timeline that was given a, at least 150 years before he was even alive by Isaiah the prophet. He knows exactly when this is going to end. And so his timing of the events becomes hastened. He looks at this and he's like, whoa, we're, we're about to head back to Jerusalem, family. We're, we're on our way home. And so I encourage you to not be lazy in studying your Bible. And most of you are here tonight so that you're not, so that, so that you're well informed of the things that are going on in our world because many of the things that are going on in the book of Daniel, especially from this point forward to the end of the book of Daniel, much of the last half uh, of the book of Isaiah, a whole bu- almost the entirety of the book of Zechariah, Um, very much what happens in the book of Joel, these things are all still future. But we know some of the things that God has said that would come to pass before those things would end have already happened. And so just like Daniel, we're looking at our world going, you know what, I think we're a little closer than we were 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, Israel was not back in the land. The valley of dry bones, no flesh on the bones, no sinew, no Jewish people in a Jewish land speaking Hebrew. That hadn't happened. That happened 71 years ago. So when we look at the word of God, especially the prophetic portions, we can go, wow, we are way closer than the time in which these things were written. Don't say, like many do, well, in the end it'll all pan out. No, God's given us this information for a reason. And Daniel was a man on the mission, and the reason he was on that mission is because God was using him in his day and time because he knew what was going to happen next. 
Daniel wanted to understand what God was doing in his time, and he wanted to make a difference in that time, and I believe that is the lesson that we can learn from taking the scriptures at face value, and there's no reason to not take them at face value. Are they true? They're always true. Are they literal? Usually the context itself will tell us whether we need to see them in some symbolic way, but in this case, when God's talking about days and times, he generally is speaking about days and times. The next thing that we see is, is the, the way we can build an effective prayer life. Because Daniel was a diligent student of the Bible, and I want you to recognize something here um, as we begin to take the rest of this chapter. If you know God's word, you know God's will insofar as God's word speaks to the area that you're praying about. So if you want to have an effective prayer life, Know God's word, because God's word is God's will. So if you want to know what God thinks about drunkenness, that can be easily solved by simply knowing the word. If you want to know what God thinks about a relationship with somebody that you're not married to that's physical, you can know how to approach that if you know God's word. If you want to know what God thinks about taking advantage of poor people, if you know God's word, you know God's will on that subject. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you know God's word, you can pray specifically for God's will. And instead of praying against God's will, because when you are praying against the word of God, you are praying against the will of God. If God has spoken on a subject, he's not changing his mind on it. His word is true. His moral character is unchanged. It never fails. So the things that he has said. So when someone comes to me, and I'll tell you one I get all the time, why, why if, we, if we think differently today about homosexuality, why isn't it okay with God? Because God said it wasn't okay. So I know God's will on that subject. It doesn't mean that I hate people that are having same-sex attraction. What it means is, I should not pray that God would change his mind on whether that's okay and try and figure out a way to explain away what God has already said is going to be a problem for them. When the church does that, the church gets in trouble because God's already spoken on it. So if I want God's will, I need to know God's word. And we're going to see the focus of this in in the remainder of this passage we have before us tonight. Daniel studied God's word. He knew. Look what it says. I studied the books. I knew what was in them. I understood his prayer life was based, in other words, on the word of God. And all serious prayer, all serious prayer begins with the will of God. Let me prove that to you. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Whose kingdom come? His kingdom come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the model. That's the disciples' prayer. We call it sometimes the Lord's prayer. But that particular prayer is a model prayer for us. How does it begin? God, your will be done. So if God's already stated an opinion on something, and we know what it is because it's in the word of God, that's how we most effectively pray. And I'm stunned at how many people effectively pray against the will of God. 
They already know that what they're doing is not of the Lord. God's already spoken to that issue in their life through the Word of God, and they're over here trying to pray against what the Bible actually says. And they wonder why their life is coming unhinged. Because as a believer, we want to align our prayer life with God's will. Amen? Now let me show you another thing that you may have not thought of. It's found in Luke 22. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, directly before he's going to be crucified, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, not even Jesus' will, but Lord, your will be done. So if Jesus gave the disciples the viewpoint of God's will, he said, when you pray, pray like this. If Jesus himself, when he prayed to Father God, prayed exactly the same way, how do you think we should pray? In accordance with God's word, because it is God's stated and revealed will. It is always the right thing to pray. You don't need to pray a different way. If God said it, believe it, that settles it. Amen? Your prayer life. And I want to just give you an acronym. You can write it down. It's up on the screen if you can uh, figure it out. If you can't, you can download it. Prayer, you can describe it. I've worked out all kinds of things. I'm going to give you the simplest one. Just the word acts. A-C-T-S. Acts. Prayer always begins with adoration. Worship. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Amen? That's honoring God. That's worshiping God. That's putting God in his right position. If you want to have an effective prayer life, God must be in the right position. He is not your servant. He is not a genie in the bottle. He's not us going to him and saying, Lord, you got to give me this because I prayed it three times. We adore the Lord first. We worship him first. He is hallowed. He's in heaven. We're on earth. We leave him in the right position. A. Second, we confess that we don't know everything, that we are sinners, that we are the problem. It's not him. If you begin with adoration or if you begin with worship... You put God in his right place, and then you begin by saying, and Lord, I'm sorry for my faults. I'm sorry for my weaknesses. I'm sorry for my failures. They are not on you. I'm the problem. I'm the weak spot. When I begin by A-C-T, and the T in this case is thanking him, Lord, I, I, I thank you that you would even listen to me. It's amazing to me how many people's prayer lives, when you listen to them, it's like God is somehow obligated to answer their prayer. Now, in a strange way, because he said he would, there is an obligation on his part, but sometimes we approach it like we have to beat God into submission on this issue. We need to have adoration. We need to have confession. We need to be thankful in all things, whatever God does. And so when I use the word thanks, it's whether he gives us what we ask for or does not give us what we ask for. If he withholds it because he knows better or gives us abundance out of the things that we can't even see, we are to be thankful in all things. Amen? We are to commit our our prayers to God and be thankful in all things. 
Not thankful when he simply answers affirmatively, but thankful in all things. So if you want an effective prayer life, it begins with adoration. It continues with confession. It is deeply embedded in a thankful heart that says, God, you're, you're the answer. I'm not. You tell me what I need to know. Show me what to do. Tell me where to go. Whatever it is, I'm thankful for any guidance you can give me. And it ends with supplication. That's when you start getting on your face and just saying, Lord, I, I, I don't know the answer yet. And so I'm going to keep asking you until you firmly speak into my life. But every time I speak to you, I'm going to adore you. Every time I speak to you, I'm going to confess my part. Every time I speak to you, I'm going to be thankful. And I'm just going to keep asking until you tell me no. So when you have those issues in your life, you, you, you've got cancer. It is okay to keep praying until God takes you home. That's what supplication is. It's like, Lord, you, you haven't healed me yet. I don't know that you don't want to heal. If God hasn't spoken, then keep on supplicating. Just say, Lord, I, I, I adore you. I'm sorry for my part in this. If, you know, if I ate too much red meat and that's why this happened to me, that's on me. If I sucked in too much for bad L.A. air, and I, that, that's on me. But I'm thankful that you gave me one more day of life. And I'm going to ask you for one more day of life. And I'll be thankful for the one day. So make your prayer life the acts of someone who adores God. The acts of someone who confesses those things which we've done wrong because it's against God that we've sinned. Amen? We're thankful for anything. He doesn't owe us anything. Amen? So everything that we have, which comes from our Father of lights, who's in heaven, it's all good stuff. If you were to take away everything, he has the right to do that, but he doesn't. And so we can thank him. And then just keep asking until you know that you know that you know. Amen? Let's get to the particulars of this prayer. I think we can get through this fairly easily. Verse 4, the particulars of Daniel's prayer. And I want you to just highlight, if you've got a highlighter with you or a pencil with you or something you can write in the margin of your Bible I want you to look at the equivalencies here of the word of God found throughout this. Verse 4, and I prayed to the Lord my God, and guess what? Made confession. And said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments. What are his commandments? His word. We have sinned. And committed iniquity, we have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts, also his word. Your judgments, also his word. Neither have we heeded your servants, that would be those who brought the word of the Lord originally. Your prophets, those who spoke forth the word of the Lord originally. Who spoke your name, those who spoke for God in times past. Exactly as Hebrews declare, to our kings, to our princes. All of those things are a picture of the word of God. His precepts, judgments, servants, prophets, those who spoke his name. To our fathers, to all the people of the land, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. Lord, you're right. Lord, you're perpetually, 100% of the time right, and I'm not. Righteousness belongs to you. 
But to us, shame of face, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those near and those far off, and all countries to which you have driven them. Who drove the Jewish people from their land? God. He used the Assyrians. He used the Babylonians. He used the diaspora. He used, unfortunately, Adolf Hitler. As much as we don't like to think of it, God could have stopped Hitler. God allowed things to happen that we can't understand. Heinous, vile, disgusting, despicable, inhuman acts done to other people. But if God is sovereign, then he allowed that at the very least. And I believe that's all he did. I think he allowed Adolf Hitler to do what Adolf Hitler did. It was not his perfect will in that sense that he purposed it to happen. He simply used what was going on in the world. He allowed those things to transpire. Those that were afar off, because of the unfaithfulness which, which they have committed against you. Unfaithfulness to what? To the word of the Lord. The Lord to us belongs shame of face to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Notice the amount of confession that's in this prayer. This is not somebody going, well, you know, if you would, just wouldn't have allowed these things, we wouldn't have done that. There's no equivocation here. There's no blame shifting. It's not like, God, you had us grow up in the wrong place, the wrong time, doing the wrong thing. It's, Lord, we're a mess. We're jacked up. You were right all along, and we blew it. And this is such a powerful way for us to approach the throne of God. It's like, God, I messed up. I think God enjoys hearing from his children the truth. Because I know that when I'm not being honest with him, I know he knows it. Amen? You know, isn't it weird how you've probably been in those situations where somebody's been praying and you're going, that, that's not the truth. You think God doesn't know that? We've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God or walked in his laws. Notice again, the word of the Lord is in view. These things were spoken. They were known. The voice of God was audible in their culture. He'd spoken through Moses. He'd spoken through the prophets. He had spoken to the people of Israel time and time again. For 1,500 years, the children of Israel had at least one prophet in the land. At least. Very often, more than one simultaneously. Those prophets' words were written down. They spoke directly to the people, but they ignored it. Which he sat before us by his servants and his prophets. Again, those people that spoke for him. His word. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law, again his word, and has departed so as not to obey your voice, again his word, and therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, again his word. The servant of God have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him, and he has confirmed his words, again his word, which he spoke against us, again his word, and against our judges who judged us, by bringing great disaster upon us. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done to us what has been done to Jerusalem. And as it was written in the law of Moses, again the word, all this disaster has come upon us 
Yet we've not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth, again, the word of God. And therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does. And though we have not obeyed his voice, again his word. And now, O Lord God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name, as it is this day, we have sinned and done wickedly. Powerful, powerful, powerful prayer of repentance and confession that is based and centered in the word of God. And I want you to see there's really two parts to this. There's man's part and there's God's part. And, and as you look at this prayer, you can, you can actually lay alongside of it a prayer that's probably familiar to most of you in Second Chronicles 7, 14, which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So if we lay those things alongside you're going to see that these parts are consistent in both prayers. Man's part is to recognize our covenant relationship with God, our covenantal relationship. God said, look, I will do this if you will do that. If you will obey, then I will bless. That's a covenant. The covenant with Abraham, though the land and the promise that was made to him about the land was non-conditional, the blessings of God were very conditional. I will bless those who bless you, and I will bless you when you are being obedient. But if you're not obedient, then I'm going to turn some disastrous things on you. That's, that's man's part. We have to go to God. Notice verse 3, with a contrite heart. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. Amen? That's the principle from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, he's faithful. We have to consult God for his will. That's understanding his word. Amen? That's knowing what he's already said. More than anything else. Because when I, I know his word, I can pray very, very effectively about most things. There are a handful of things that maybe I don't know. There, there are things like, for instance, I'll give you a couple that may come up. Maybe you want to buy a, a new car. There's no new car verse in the Bible, okay? But there are verses about stewardship, aren't there? There are also verses about moderation, aren't there? There are verses about what belongs to whom, aren't there? You understand what I'm saying? You see, you can actually pray very effectively about a new car. So when someone comes to me and says, you know, I think God asked me to buy a Ferrari, I can say, mm, not the God I know. <laughs> now, God may have given you a Ferrari if you have one. God bless you. And I'm actually not down on your Ferrari. But if someone's going to come to me and say, Pastor Jeff, should I pray about a Ferrari? I'm going to say no. Why? It's not moderate in all things. It, it is an extravagance, beyond extravagance, that no child of God is going to be able to explain to another child of God why they needed a $1.3 million car when people are starving in the world. Now, you can take these things to a legalistic turn, and you can go, well, we should all be driving, you know, used Priuses or something. The Bible doesn't say anything like that either. But it does speak against extravagance. It speaks against materialism. It speaks against buying into the God of this age's plan 
which is to get us in debt. So if you have to go into major debt, guess what the answer is going to be from God? Mm, nope. Don't need the Ferrari if you need also a $3,500 month payment. Now somebody's going to come, they're going to listen online, they're going to, well, you know, I'm in business and I run this circle. You know, praise the Lord. If, if, if God sets you free, I'm not trying to make a judgment here on anyone. What I am saying is the word of God has actually spoken on these things by speaking on other issues. So don't look at the word of God like I can't find the proof text about buying a Ferrari. Because you're not going to find one. They didn't have any cars. Amen? So, so be careful about the way you pro- approach the word of God because the word of God was written to be timeless. And so it speaks in timeless principles. I can tell you for pastors, the window on these things is very narrow. Because for pastors, it says we're to be moderate in all things. In all things. In other words, my life should look a lot like your lives. All pastors' lives should look like the sheep that they tend to. So if a pastor's living an extravagant lifestyle, and, and there's no place for that in the body. I mean, if you had a church and the only people you ministered to were billionaires, then I guess it might not necessarily be sinful to live like a billionaire if that's who you're ministering to. But I'm pretty sure that's not this church. And so moderation would be absolutely in view. A house that's like everyone else's house, a car that's like everyone else's car, a salary that's commensurate with the things of this world in the world that we live in, something that is, that is a yeoman salary for those types of things. You see, God actually has spoken by his word, and we need to see it that way. It prevents a lot of error. It, it keeps us from stumbling over things that God's already been clear on. A fourth thing, confession of sin. Notice how much confession is in this prayer. It's mind-boggling how much confession is built into this prayer. It's like, look, this is my part. God, I'm going to seek your face. And in order to do that, I've got to tell you I was wrong. Look how much repentance. That's changing our ways. That's us saying, look, I was wrong, God, you were right. Here's God's part in these things. It says then there in the prayer in Chronicles, and is implied here, that's when God listens. When man's done his part, God's attention, though he can never not hear you, he's not obligated to do anything with what he hears until the prayer lines up the way it's supposed to line up, which means I can't go to God with unconfessed sin. I can't go to God with questions of things that he's already spoken on. When when I go to God, I'm supposed to be clean, and I'm supposed to be praying according to his will. And so I have to change my act. I have to change my heart. I have to change my actions. If I really want to have an effective prayer life before the Lord, that's when that communication connection happens. It is then that he forgives our sin. It, It is then that those covenantial actions that he's promised, I will, in the case of the prayer there in Chronicles, I'll heal their land. In this place, I will not bring this evil upon you. You see, there's our part and there's God's part. God will always be faithful to his part. We have to be faithful to our part. As we look at this passage and we kind of break it down, I want to be really careful 
because I think there's a, there, there is falsehood in the church today. There is no place, and I'm just going to say this as easily as I can, there is no place in Scripture that says God is going to answer the prayer that you ask when you are carrying around unrepentant sin. Repentance is part of your prayer life. If you're living in unrepentant sin, your Bible says, writing again through the prophet Isaiah, that your sins have separated you from God so he does not hear your prayer. So if your prayer life is affected and you know there's an issue between you and God, that is the issue. It's confession first. It's saying, God, I messed up and I'm sorry about it and I'm turning and going the other way. If you keep unrepentant sin, you are going to have a monumentally ineffective prayer life, if not a dead one. If, if you don't get rid of the bitterness and the anger and the hatred and the lust and the envy and the things that you deal with, if you're hanging on to those things and somehow justifying them before the Lord and you go into the throne room of the king, he's, he's not going to be listening. He's going to hear it because he's God. But effectively, the volume's going to go down, and he's going to go, there's a bigger issue. John codified this in, in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you really want to hear from me, then do what I say. So be careful. Because there's a lot of people that think they can just fill their lives up with trash, and, and God's good with it. God's not okay with it. It will affect your prayer life. It will affect your walk in the spirit. It will affect your walk with the Lord. Doesn't mean God's going to kick you out of his kingdom necessarily. You know, if that sin is too grave and completely unrepentant, then one would have to ask the question, am I actually a child of God at all? That's between you and the Lord. But if you carry around unrepentant things and you look at God and you say, God, you have to accept this, then you disagree with God's word, you disagree with God's will, and there is no guarantee that the Lord is going to hear or act on those prayers. I'm going to give you seven truths and three steps. And again, I'll make this as quick as I can. There are seven truths in this chapter about God's relationship with Daniel. Number one, he's great. God is great. Amen? He's great. I'm not great. He's great. A second thing. He's awesome in power, and we should actually fear him. Now, now I don't want to get people in this place that some people get to, to where you're wandering around thinking, as I did as a young Christian, that God was constantly in a state of mind to barbecue me. Not that type of fear. That fear is really reverence, that the reverence of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, understanding who he is in relationship to who I am, that kind of fear, I need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. He's right. I'm usually uh, off a little bit. A third thing, he keeps his covenants. And he does so with steadfast, loving kindness when we're loving him. But God's not beyond letting us stew in our stuff. He allows things into our lives. And if we will not come clean with it, then those covenants, he delays the fulfillment of the things he wants to do. He will allow you to be in a difficult place until you say, I'm tired of being here. 
And I know what the issue is. It's me. And so I'm going to give up my stuff because I really want your best, God. God is righteous. And by that, he is absolutely correct, fully in his understanding of absolutely everything and how it relates to everything else. He's not just right, he is righteous in the way that he deals with everything, including the entirety of the world simultaneously, every last living, breathing human being. He is never wrong. So rightness would be the thing that you might you know, come up with if you answer a math question properly. God is righteous, he is 100% right in every circumstance and situation throughout eternity. So if he's righteous, we can kind of see we're not, and so we need to turn to his righteousness. A fifth thing, do you know that God's a God of judgment? Now the cool thing is, if you're in grace, you're judged by the grace of God, amen? Which means your sins have already been forgiven, the penalty of them has been esponged at the cross, and you're no longer under the weight. The sword of Damocles is no longer hanging over your neck. You've had your sins wiped out, but God is still a God of judgment. And one day he is going to judge everyone, either at the Bema seat of Christ, when you go to heaven for the things done in this body, good or bad, to receive crowns, to give to Jesus, or if you don't know the Lord, then there is a far worse judgment coming. But he does judge everyone. That judgment at the Bema seat has been given to Christ by grace and through faith. The judgment at the great white throne is the judgment of the Lord based on whether you did or did not believe. And in this case, the only ones left are the ones that didn't believe. And it's fearsome because the only outcome is being cast away from God forever. So God's a God of judgment. We need to remember that. Praise God for grace. Because I know how I'm going to be judged. I'm going to be judged in Christ Jesus and found innocent. Even though I'm guilty. God's going to declare me innocent by the righteousness of Christ. God is a God of mercy and forgiveness. Praise the Lord. Amen? He has forgiven us. He continues to forgive us. He always will forgive us. He's never not going to forgive. If you ask, 1 John 1, 9, underline it. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Remember, he's a God of judgment. He's just. He's, he's going to judge it. He's faithful and just to forgive it. And even better still, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Amen? He takes care of all the mess. He not only forgives it, but he cleans us up so that we're no longer dirty. Beautiful picture of his mercy and his forgiveness. He does not give us what we've deserved. He gives us grace instead, which is his unmerited favor, and in that he forgives our sin. And the seventh thing, it's God that acts. When you get to heaven, you're going to find out God did all of it. God prompted you. God worked in your life. God gave you the opportunities. It was God that stirred you into action. It was God that willed to do his good pleasure in your life. You're going to find out it was all him. You see, these truths are the things that we can look at and say, you know what, Lord, let me be in the right place for that. How do we do that? Prayer and confession of sin. Flee iniquity. Turn away from it. Resist the devil. Amen? The Bible plainly declares that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. 
But if we don't resist, the devil will get an RV and move in with us. Amen? He will. If you tell the devil he's welcome, he's coming in. He's going to camp in your backyard. He's going to try and influence your kids. If we will not pray and confess and then turn from iniquity, that means to get away from the evil stuff of this world, then we're putting ourselves in harm's way. And then the last thing, the step that we need to take, and we're doing that tonight, is understanding and obeying the truth. The way that you obey the truth is know what the truth is. Amen? That's what we're doing here. We're studying God's truth. And so how do we do these things and wrap this up tonight? The power of confession. If you look at this, there are six verbs that Daniel employs here in this passage to describe the condition of the children of Israel and how they got where they were. Now, I want you to notice this. This is how severe the thing can be uh, in your life and in mine that Daniel would have to go to this kind of detail in order to describe this. They had sinned. That means to miss the mark of God's perfection. That means here's God's standard, we missed it. That can be knowledgeably or that can be in essence, an error. It can be a stumble or a fall, but they sinned. They had done wrong. That means to distort or to act perversely. In other words, they knew what it was, but they twisted the truth a little bit to kind of make it look like the actions that they were undertaking were going to be okay. They were wicked. That is to absolutely know that something is wrong and do it anyway. You see, these are very different things. There's a difference between distorting something and then kind of falling into your own trap and knowing something is actually wrong and wicked and doing it anyway. Then they turned away. The Hebrew word there, kawir, is is to satisfy oneself. In other words, God is no longer God. I'm God. I'm going to satisfy myself. I'm going to turn away from God and towards myself. In other words, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to be narcissistic. And finally, they would not listen. Lo shma. It's like, I, I don't want to hear the voice of the Lord. I'll listen to anybody else's voice but God's. I'll turn on the TV. I'll turn on a podcast. I'll read a book. I, I will read almost anything. But I'm not going to read the Word of God because I might see something that I don't like because I live a different way and I don't want to know what it has to say. So they no longer listen. That's to reject known truth. Why are these things important to us tonight? Because in this prayer, Daniel's really given us a picture of our own, our, our own proclivities towards trying to live life the way we want to live it instead of the way God wants to live it. And when you look at what he's doing here, he's saying, look, the problem is me. Here's how you fix it. I have to turn towards the Lord, not away from the Lord. When I know what God wants, I need to do that. When there's, there's an area that's gray, guess which way I go? Whichever way is closest to the Lord, not the one that's furthest from the Lord. When, when there's something that's questionable in our life, if it's questionable, that's a good reason to question whether I should do it or not, and the answer should be no. Just don't. You can't go wrong by not doing something that's questionable. But you can go wrong by doing something that's questionable only to find out it wasn't questionable. It was actually wrong. And so Daniel's prayer life echoes these truths. He was confessing sins that were active or sins that were of commission. He he did them. 
He personally did them, or the children of Israel did them. But he was also confessing sins of omission, things that they didn't do that they should have done, things that they, they should have undertaken, things that they should have believed, should have known, things that were actually quite clear, but because they omitted those truths from their thinking, Daniel says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, Lord, that we were wrong in this. You see, most sin, if not all, is actually from one single source. It's just simply the outcome of not listening to God. It's not hearing his voice. It's not obeying him. That's why Paul reminds us there in Romans 3, there's none righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. We've all turned away. We've become altogether worthless. There's not one who does good, not even one. That's an echo of the promise that Isaiah gives us in chapter 53 of the book of Isaiah. See, the problem is, in our flesh, in our own selves, there's not one of us that's actually really internally good. We all have some issues deep down inside. The question is, what are we going to do with those issues? How are we going to respond to those issues? Are we going to respond with sin, disobedience, rebellion? Because if we do, that comes at a very heavy price. Daniel believed in God's sovereign hand. He understood the responsibility of the free will that he was given. And I I pray that we would pray with no delay whatsoever for what God wants in our lives and that what we pray for would line up with his word because that is the short path to blessing. That's the quick way. That's the way that has the least problems. And so I pray that we pray as Daniel prayed because uh, we surely don't want to have happen what happened to them. They knew that there was going to be a scattering. They knew it was because they failed to keep the Sabbath. They knew exactly how long that that would last. They're going to be told, as Leviticus had reminded them, if you do not take a Sabbath rest for the land, then I will extract that from you. God's going to get every last one of those back. 490 years, and the Lord's going to pull all those Sabbaths back into view for them, and he's going to speak that in this 70 weeks prophecy. And so God wants us to live our lives for him. And if we do, and if we live by the word, then the Lord will bless us. If we don't, then we end up in those places that we usually bellyache about. It's like, I don't know why this is happening, Lord. And then we turn around, we go, oh, that's why. Because I wasn't listening. Hear the voice of the Lord. Do what he tells you to do. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Pray that you would bless us as your people. God, would you instruct us from heaven. Help our prayer lives to be this beautiful picture of acting these things out. Lord, let us adore you. Let us confess. Lord, let us be thankful. And God, then let us supplicate before your throne of grace. We're so grateful for the work that you're doing in us and in this church and pray that we would do nothing to hinder it and everything to cause it to prosper. Lord, help us to flee the things that are dangerous, doubtful, hurtful. Lord, let us cling to those things which are good and noble and of a good report. We bless you. We thank you. And God's people all said, Amen. amen.